Hello and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life, an unscripted free-flow discussion of the experiences of private security contractors from the perspective of private security contractors. From Washington State, I'm your host, Scott Dresser. My guest for this episode is Travis Hayworth. He is a former U.S. Marine, Deputy Sheriff, State Game Warden, Federal Law Enforcement, and Private Security Contractor. Mouthful, folks. What else could you ask for from a patriot? Travis, welcome to the show. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me, and it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for accepting the invite again. <laughs> a little <laughs> for for those who, who don't. <laughs> yeah, uh, we had some technical glitches uh, uh, on our first try. So, uh, but uh, you know what they say about friends? They they might go out of sight, but they'll never leave you. So. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. Second time should be the charm, right? Scott? We're hoping so, right? So, <laughs> okay, so. Um, so we're, we're doing this phone call. Uh, we're in state. We're separated by states, and uh, he is. Uh, we won't go into it, but uh, there's there is a potential he could get called away. We're hoping he doesn't. So with that said, Travis, for the folks that are listening, um, can you briefly run through detail, however you want it, uh, your life prior to becoming a private security contractor? Yeah, absolutely, Scott. Um, and it's like I said, it's a, an honor to be here. I don't, I don't just don't know a lot of people that are are putting that information out there and and have a similar interest and background in it and just trying to share, I guess, the experiences. So I think it's it's pretty pretty awesome. But, you know, for for me, I I think it's it's interesting because it's certainly I didn't go through grade school thinking I'd be any kind of private security contractor because quite honestly I don't know what that is. I probably watched a couple movies where it's uh it, it can be a version of the job, certainly with the Hollywood flair, but I uh, had no clue um what what that job entailed. So uh, went through my life, of course, school and some college, played football in college and and just never was quite I guess my niche. Uh, I always thought about the military and structure and Teamwork, teammates, and so uh, you know, joined the Marine Corps after a second year of college, and and later, actually, and said, "Hey, I'd like to be gone in a, in a week." And first thing, of course, they asked you if you're wanted, and I said, "No, I, I promise, I'm not wanted. I just, I'm ready to get this on." So, um, what wasn't quite a week, but you know, we got we got it done, and and I'll never forget that day. Actually, it was uh, Super Bowl Sunday of '02. Um, or excuse me, 1992. I'm dating myself. <laughs> but yep, I was uh, with family, and recruiter came and picked me up because he was such a gracious host. He drove me to to boot camp. So anyhow, hmm. I, I think in many a, a minute later after that, for not sharing the whole story of becoming a marine. <laughs> Beyond that, uh, did my Marine Corps time, loved it, uh, loved every part of it. But uh, you know, I think there was a part of the civilian life I missed. But I still needed that structure, and um, so I actually got involved in law enforcement. And that was kind of a roundabout way. Once again, I didn't grow up thinking I'd ever be any kind of law enforcement, um, but I wasn't an outlaw. I just didn't know enough about it. Had a had a good buddy that was a deputy sheriff, and I was actually because a broken leg. He he came to me and and he said, "Hey, you look like you don't like your current job because 
when you're injured and you, you take the first job you can get when you're released. <laughs> it tends to not be the high-speed, low-drag one. And uh, anyhow, I said, well, let me ride with you. Let's see what that's all about. And Of course, pretty dynamic, ever-changing, uh, generally not a dull moment, and really a career like private contracting. It's it's, it's one you, you can make uh, the, the best of it, or you can decide you're going to have a bad attitude and and not enjoy it and not do good good job, then you might as well go home. And I chose the first first option, enjoyed being a deputy, worked for several uh, sheriffs in my time, in my career. However, one day I, uh, I, I backed up a state game warden who was dealing with a guy passed out in the middle of the highway in the middle of the night, and uh, the guy happened to be a lot larger than the game warden needed backup. The rest is history. What the heck's a game warden? Um, and started that pursuit of a new career. Uh, being out in the middle of nowhere generally is a single resource. I kind of like that excitement of not having backup. And, hmm. and so that's kind of kind of what leads me up to the the, the private security contracting and, and contracting is, is broad broad stroke. I you know I went back to college to get a bachelor's degree to to get a state game warden job and. Um, Ran out of money quickly, so I was looking at what was available to to, to get into and, and actually make some money. <clears throat> some advertising for security contracting, and to be honest, Scott, I thought it was a hoax. I mean, there's there's a lot of that out there, hmm. um, and I thought it was kind of a hoax. But what was incredible to me is, oh, probably 72 hours after inquiring. Uh, and I, I apologize. I'm sitting in packed out gear and it's a little warm. So I apologize for that, Scott. I had to get some air going. That's all right. Um, adds authenticity. What's that? <laughs> I said it adds authenticity and credibility to what we're talking about. So I don't. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I inquired literally within 72 hours or maybe just a little over. Um, here I am taking psych tests, taking drug tests, uh, all, all via, you know, online uh, services and, of course, you know, laboratory visits. And next thing you know, I'm headed to uh, headed to Kuwait. Wow. And that's, that, that's you know, an, an unbelievable nutshell, I guess, best way to put it. Um, started down that path not believing it was realistic. Uh, still, still to this day, what an adventure. So... Um, and of course, I know you and I talked about dates before, and uh, and I'll do my best to have some recall with you today, Scott. I'm <laughs> on on sixteens, and I'm a little bit fatigued, but I'm get through it. I totally understand. Uh, and I think I think uh, we won't hold your feet too too close to the fire on that. But uh, but you know that's a mission. Yeah. Seventy two hours. That really is quick. And uh, uh, and then you're. Your what's what would we call it? Uh, your your apprehension about the whole thing is totally understandable, probably more so, because yes. your time and experience prior to and since contracting in law enforcement, I mean, you got it. I mean, you just let's face it, you're naturally suspicious, right? You see, you well, see yeah. and hear so much stuff that turns out to be hooey. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. You touch, you, you tap one link, and next thing you know, you're on a link you you wouldn't want your girlfriend to see. Or <laughs> you tap it, 
you tap one link and, and all of a sudden your, your computer is no longer working. So it's incredible. I mean, I, and I think, you know, the valuable takeaway though for you and I, Scott, is the time frame we're talking about here, um, you know, 2006 leading in 2007, I guess, somewhere in there, it wasn't as rampant. You know, people weren't preying upon those of us who wanted to go and in a different form serve their country. But really, I think a practical application helped serve the warfighter. And, and we weren't preyed upon as much because I don't, I don't think people knew about us as much. Okay. And, uh, and that all changed, obviously. Now you, okay, so now when you say preyed upon, I, I, I see both sides of it now, both from the contractor perspective, but also because the time frame when you and I were talking about this, uh, once or twice previously, it had to do with, uh, the internet was still, was, you know, we were just seeing the iPhone and so-called smartphones coming out and there was still a lot of stuff that was still new. And yeah. while a lot of stuff, uh, like, uh, and it's come up in other conversations, porn and, and other stuff. A lot of that stuff was just starting to really become a thing. So you're yeah. right. Um, so, uh, if you could, um, so you, your first contract as a contractor was in 2006, right? That's correct. Okay. And that was, uh, now who was that for, for the people that are listening? Well, because um, We'll get there. I just don't want to. I don't want to give it all away. But uh, who was that for, and, and what was the job you were hired for? So first, first contract, first job um, was initially with. Uh, it was actually a, it was a conglomerate, but the immediate contact, immediate supervision contractor, if you will, was 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 a combat support associates, and the job was initially force protection so as you can imagine during the second portion of of a surge with the logistics and the, and the amount of equipment and vehicles and assets moving through um, you know support support facilities fobs etc throughout the Middle East there's a real need for that force protection um, and so that was that was the first gig if you will and it was it was unique in a way that that particular contracting company was on the tail end of a 10 year contract, mm. which is kind of unheard of. I mean, that's a long, that's a long time. And, um, that can be really good and it can be bad. You know, by the time you're at the tail end of 10 years, you've, you, you've probably, you've probably gotten paid. <laughs> so, uh, to some extent, you know, some, some of us employees, we, you know, we, we suffered a bit, but we got through it. And I, by that, I mean just little things like, hey, we need to roll out, so uh, let's get rid of the winter weight uh, tactical gear in the middle of summer. Well, that's that's a little problematic when you're in the Middle East in the summer. Hmm. Um, well, like you said, that don't which, which don't kill you makes you stronger or sweat more. So <laughs> we got through that. And I that was you know that was, was kind of an adventure. I, I would say for me, it was everything from. Uh, you know, trying to find IEDs on, on uh, American, you know, rental vehicles and, and third country national vehicles. A lot, as you imagine, a lot of semis. So we we looked for a lot of IEDs, a lot of V bed. Um, we did a lot of, um, as you can imagine, just force protection. 
that would include perimeters. We acted as part of a you know quick response unit. So it it was interesting for an amount of time. Of course, given my background, Scott, um, you know, the, an opportunity presented itself where the the company actually formed a, a law enforcement unit to uh, assist with law enforcement on uh, army installations within the country of Kuwait. So I I jumped on that opportunity. That just made sense. I had the necessary background, which was uh, the the years of experience required, number one. And um, that just, that opened up a lot of other opportunities. I, uh, we got to assist with some PIA, uh, some personal security details. You know, you've got uh, Secretary of Defense come in, et cetera, et cetera. So they, they would enlist our assistance, even if it was just, uh, you know, road traffic type stuff and, so a lot of opportunities and once again, just real, real thankful. I think real character builder to, to work in those environments and to work around the quality of people you get to. And, you know, obviously the, the folks from other countries too, they, they kind of add to the entire flavor of the, the contracting world, as you know. Yeah. Now, so you, so you were there still at a time, um, you know, and when we, when we talk about, uh, the second Iraq or the second Gulf War, uh, most people don't think of Kuwait. However, there was a time uh, up until probably between 2008 and 2010 when uh, Kuwait was still and the stuff that was there, not that Kuwait still isn't important, but at that time, it was really important, the stuff that was going on there. And you, yeah. you touch on them, V-bids, IEDs, all the stuff that obviously wasn't as bad as Iraq and Afghanistan, but you had a lot of stuff going on in Kuwait because, the, uh, for lack of a better term, the bad guys uh, knew that that's where we they probably had a better chance because there were a lot of forces in there, a lot of units from around the world, and they were either coming in there before deploying out or they were coming in for R&R and so they probably considered it a uh, somewhere between a soft target and a very valuable target if they could hit because that was cons- what they was considered the uh, uh, well that whole area was what the Kuwait ASG the Area Support Group right so I mean that was that was a pretty yeah. large large going on there was a lot of traffic a lot of everything in there during that time is that correct? Well, it's an incredible amount, and not just you know it's the focus is on. And, and, I, and I think you and the folks are always, you know, going to be on the military and, and the mission, and the mission serving them. But the reality was, you know, with ASG Kuwait, um, whether it was, uh, you know, you know, an army installation or an air force installation, it was an incredible amount of not only military personnel logistics, but the civilian contractor mm-hmm. uh, personnel, and it was just. It just happened to be the one of the best, if not the best, hubs to get folks, warfighter, contractors, support group, um, bean counters, everybody. If you need to get them into theater via or i.e. Iraq, Afghanistan, I mean it, that that was the place to go. So um, it was incredible. The logistics alone were incredible to me. I, you know, you happened to actually work another contract at an Air Force base. I think you and I spoke about that, but uh, it, it, it was actually part of the immigration process. As as you recall, you had to 
immigrate into Kuwait. That was my favorite round of Kuwait he had going. But um, I remember. Part of the, <laughs> yeah, a great way to get, get to KD. Um, but you know, it, it, of course, as you know, every every track needs some putty, and, and we were the putty on that one. So <laughs> we, um, we we provided that service, and and of course, we liaised with you know every civilian contractor that came into Kuwait via theater, not necessarily uh, stateside, but definitely theater. We helped him immigrate into Kuwait, if you can believe that. And kind of incredible. I mean, I would I want to run through specific numbers, but it was uh, it was large numbers of folks twice a day uh, that came in the country. So I'm sure that was of an it. interesting contract. And now is that the one? And, was um, that out there at Ali Al Salem? If I'm saying it correctly. Yep. Yep, yeah, it was on Al Saleem Air Base. Yep. yep. Okay. Um, and that was, uh, you know, just a large version of Earth, John, really. Um, but it was, of course, more, more air oriented and PAX terminal and, and those type of, uh, liaisons. So a little okay. bit further away from the city, too. I can't remember what we call that commute, but, uh, not a great highway to break on on because there's no triple A. Well, no, and you, and if I recall correctly, that was one of a number of bases out there that were located directly off of what we still refer to as the highway of death, if I'm not correct, if I'm, if I'm, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. But I believe that's, that would be one of the, the larger ones that's just a tad closer to to, to the uh, to the border than you'd expect. Right. Yeah, there are a couple of them out there. The air assets. Yeah. 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 Hey. Did you ever get? I never did get out to. Um, I, I know of a couple. I the names escaped me because I was never there, so I never had it ingrained in my my soul. But I, you may recall the names. I don't know. Are the bases out there like Virginia and Deering? Yeah. Yeah, that's yep. right. Yeah, I was out there. I was out there. I spent time at Air Jan, Beering, Virginia, the Bag Farm, the the other places, the ASPs. I mean, yeah. yeah. What I never made it to was Ali Al Salim, which you know had some sort of mythical status about it. To this day, I don't understand, <laughs> but I mean, it did. Guys were like they talk about it, and you could almost see a dream state in their eyes, like they wanted to get a job out there. <laughs> it's like. Wow. <laughs> you know, I mean, that it just, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they, it's like you could see the stars in their eyes when they're talking about, I want to work out there. Why? I don't know, because it's cool, man. It's like, okay. <laughs> but well, you worked you work there. You worked there. Yeah, I think if you worked there, you, uh, you had a little better housing. <laughs> okay, maybe that's what it was. I, uh, but it, it was, that, if I'm not mistaken, Ali Al Salim was considered a cool guy base out there. Is that correct? Well, I, I, I guess. I don't, I don't know. I, 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 I'm a cool guy. Um, but I, I would say it, it was, it was, it was, uh, way, way different. Maybe, maybe interpreted as better than Eric John. Okay. I, I, I think there was a lot more shit going on out of Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, Eric Jan was where the flagpole was. That's where all the, that's right. The heavy hitters came and went and had their meetings and, and, uh, United had, uh, you know, well, when I say spit shine boots, I mean there were some guys that did that, but uh, yep, yeah, yep. yeah. So that, that was the those flag were, Those were those were tan tan roughouts. I mean, those guys are hardcore. <laughs> I mean, 
<laughs> yeah, I was talking with the guy the other day. I think you even mentioned it uh, once when we were talking the, the black cats. It's like, damn, they still do it. Yes, they do. Wow. Um, yeah. Okay, so so you did so your original job, force protection. You transferred into law enforcement capacity, and but that was but when you did that, that was with the same company, CSA. Uh, but correct. it was but it was the Leosa contract. Is that correct? Yeah, it was. Uh, they called it uh, Liso. Liso, okay. So that that was the Liso, which of course another another four letter word. Uh, <laughs> it was law, law enforcement support officer. Actually, kind of uh, was interesting because you know our I never really knew what our authority was, but that was fine. Um, <laughs> we supported Navy MAs. They were the primaries, and because as you know, your MP is. Army MPs, a combat-oriented military police officer, so they were deployed to the field where their mission took them, and that's why they brought all these uh, reserve Navy MAs in, and mm. of course, a lot of them didn't have any law enforcement experience, so we got into that contract. Now, I'm not going to tell you there's high-speed police chases through Kuwait or anything of that nature. There was certainly mundane moments, because most, most soldiers are squared away, most military members, but you know, we, we did get some, some stuff I guess I would have never expected, evening hours at times. Um, you know, certainly a, a lot of stuff for sale and over there in the Middle East, um, not all of it legitimate. And so we, we definitely used to deal with, uh, I'm not sure what the terminology would be, but I guess I would just describe it. We would be patrolling in the evening hours and, you know, you, you get to where you can identify and look at Just like... Just like you've got a problem at a checkpoint, uh, someone waiting or hesitating too long to move forward, etc. As you patrol, especially Arif John, in Penn City, you know, it just became obvious when you saw a lone individual, we'll call him out as a soldier, not as a contractor, but a lone individual sitting there on a Texas barrier in the middle of the night in Penn City. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, you never really caught anybody because he was a lookout, but what you did observe is what was the after effect. It's probably someone saying their body. And, um, you know, a lot, a lot of stuff like that going on, uh, which you just kind of wouldn't expect, Scott. But we did our best to, to at least manage it, I'd say. Right. I don't know if we put a tent in it, though. Well, I, and, and the thing is, as private security contractors, uh, especially for those uh, of us who perhaps uh, served in the military prior to, uh, we, we had a difficult job because we were civilians, yet we were charged with a certain duty and a certain job. And, and, you know, we, we had to, uh, for lack of a better term, swear, you know, to follow certain guidelines and report certain things. Uh, and, and so there was a lot of conflict internally with a lot of us, you know, do we, don't we? These are our fellow comrades. They, uh, they're either getting ready to go out in, to harm's way again, or they've just gotten back from harm's way. And if you've never been in that situation, if you've never, I'm not trying to defend or justify or excuse some of the stuff that went on, even though it may sound like it. <laughs> um, but I mean, I understand what you're saying because it was a, you had to do your job. That's what they were paying you to do. Right. And the army wanted you to do it. But by the same token, nobody, really wanted to hear about some of the dirty stuff 
Um, Correct. So it was a difficult job. So and what you were doing, even more so, because we we what we found what we did often was turned over to you, and you guys had to figure out how to deal with it, <laughs> right? Correct. Correct. You, you tried to figure out a way, you know, if it was in your scope. I mean, the bottom line, and that's. We spent a lot of time with that. Now, depending upon your military counterpart, you may always be within your scope. If you may, you may have had a hard charger, uh, not get you in trouble too, but it all worked out in the end. So, right. Yeah. Well, the military needed us, and, and that was the bottom line. So, right. Uh, right. No. You know, we, we stayed within our scope and didn't poke the bear too bad. So. Right. No, and I totally get it. And I will say. You know, while I was quite cognizant, I'm sure you and a lot of us were cognizant of, you know, l- l- let's be cognizant and conscientious of who and what we're doing, what we're doing, too. But there was a certain threshold. There was a certain line that if they crossed, it was like, you know, dude, you just you went too far. Sorry. Yep. It's going up. Um, you know, I'm running this one up up the chain of command. Um, and, you know, and it's not it's not like we were dirty cops or anything. But it's just, I mean, some things it's like, you know, it's, ah, forget it. It's not a big deal. I do the same thing, or I might have done the same thing if I was in his shoes. Who cares? It's not a big deal. You know, it's not like he yeah. was stealing anything. It's not like he was selling secrets. It's not like, you know, it's, it, it wasn't out there bashing windows. Anyway, um, so I digress yeah. a little bit. But, yeah, I totally agree. So if we can, before we move on to your other job, because you worked in Iraq as well, right? Yes. Okay, so before we get to, before we transition to that, can you, if you're willing to, can you recall an incident, or maybe two if you want, uh, that, that in your mind really, really stood out for good or for bad? Uh, maybe you don't want to remember it. I don't know. <laughs> is there some, is something you want to tell folks is like, you know, I remember this one incident. Well, um, you know, not not a lot from Kuwait. I well, I, I would say that the one incident, oddly enough, from Kuwait that I recall was uh, being in a traffic accident in Kuwait City in the middle of the middle of the night, and um, being the victim, if you will, and I'm not a victim. That's just the terminology that gets used unless you're in Kuwait. Meaning, uh, we were at the stoplight. And we got ran into in the back of our vehicle. Hmm. And it's re- really problematic when the people that run into you, A, are Kuwaiti, mm-hmm. B, speak Arabic, and you don't. It, it just it continues to roll downhill <laughs> and, happen, and happen to be somebody of somebody. Right. And uh, I'll tell you, before, before I knew it, we were at the police station. Hmm. And not not detained per se or under arrest. We may have been detained. I don't know. I don't speak Arabic, but um, it was looking like we're moving into some form of formal investigation. And um, I ended up. I just walked out, and you know, I don't know if you remember these times, but I found there's a couple ways to be around Kuwaitis. You can act like you're going to put up with their their BS, or you could show them that you weren't. And it was time to move on because your day still had to go on. And so that's what we did. We left because uh, we huh. were at fault, number one. Right. And uh, they, they let us go. 
Right. But I can tell you there was a moment there where I thought, I don't think I have enough KD. It's not like I'm in Mexico with pesos <laughs> to dollars. I don't think I have enough KD here to get out of this deal. I don't know why that was a memorable thing. I think well, I think the reason maybe is is it just it, it can show you in just a minute in a foreign country. Even though I thought we were pretty darn aware and head on a swivel, and not that this was some terrorist trying to take us out, but just that quick in a foreign country, how little you could be. Right. Oh yes. And uh, yes. Yes. So it was a good. That was a good. A good reminder that we're all. Uh, we're all susceptible to something. We are, and and and, and, and I can attest to that. And what you're saying, and and what's that old saying? Something about having friends in the right places. Um, more than once, that came in handy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, you know, and you're the kind of guy I know that because we when we met over there, and that was in. Uh, you and I met in 2007 over there. Is that correct? That does sound right. I was on possibly that was beginning a year two for me. Okay. Yeah. When we, I, I, I want to say, or maybe maybe year one. Well, what I remember is you were part of that Liesel project at that time. Yes. Okay. So. Yeah, um, that, that's right. Yep. Yep. Okay. So, uh, and what you were talking about, you know, them going on year 10 and one thing or another. And a lot of things have changed since then. But at that time, they, like a lot of security companies in that entire region, were operating under what uh, maybe some folks don't know and others maybe will remember. When I said it, was, it was what we called, uh, uh, I think the term was cost plus contracts. Uh, yes. Okay. And, and and so things were, you know, a lot different than they are now. And there were, you know, let's let's be honest, there was a lot of people that got their hands slapped in the cookie jar, so to speak, um, from various nationalities. And uh, eventually Congress got in the act. Um, and uh, I won't go too far down that rabbit hole, but CSA got caught up in that at one point. Yes. Okay, so I, I I do recall that I I remember I think I was uh, taking the task a little bit too. Yeah. Um, now it, it wasn't a um, big deal. It was it was simply uh, having a contract because that's what your that's what your you had a contract as a contractor and uh, the contract said one thing and and the paycheck said another. So <laughs> we, we did take the task and it really worked out. Right. Bottom line. Right. No. I, yeah. And, and, you know, and there was a saying over there, uh, an often trite saying at some point where it's like, dude, it is what it is. Um, stay in your lane. Keep your head down. Just do your job. Um, things will work themselves out. Um, and for the most part, they did, you know, because it's not like the army, big green, whatever you want to call them. They weren't blind to this stuff. They knew what was going on, but they also yeah. knew how to pick their fights and their battles. Um, so, uh, and it's not that CSA was a bad company. That's not what we're saying. So anybody that's listening, we're no. not, it's not like we're trying to shame them or anything. Um, you know, there was plenty of blame to go around with everybody out there. Uh, they were fine. Um, yeah, good people, bad people, no matter where you go, what you do. Um, and you know, there's just an awful lot of politics involved out there and that sort of thing. So, okay, let's, yeah. um, 
So unless there's something else, and if there is, let me know that you want to talk about with your time with CSA, we can move on to your time in Iraq. Yeah, so I, you know, I jumped, I mean, well, the, the proper terminology is jump ship. <laughs> uh, and it, it was never an intention of mine. I'm, you know, Marine Corps, well, I, I think I was loyal before the Marine Corps, but the Marine Corps, you know, I certainly ingrained that loyalty in me if it was not already there. And, you know, I was never, I was going to finish out with CSA. Uh, of course, Working at all the Alcaline, maybe that's why everybody thought it was uh, a place to be because you got so much contact, and it wasn't limited with our time in CSA, right? I mean, your time, your time in force protection limited, um, really. And you know, it's not like you have to visit a child. You just, you're always on the ground, always doing something to try to save a life. So you get to all the Alcaline, you're around contractors all the time. They got nothing but time because you hold their future in their hands. <laughs> so I actually I met some some uh, real small core group of folks working for a company called Systems Products and Solutions and um, SPS. Hmm. And I think at the time when when they hired me, um, it, you know I think they might have had ten employees, maybe less. So initially. Then we go up to uh, Iraq, and I believe I ended up in Balad. So it's pretty much posted up out of Balad. Uh, they had just won a contract. And it was called the Spot Jams. Had to deal with uh, letters of authorization that allowed contractors to, to you know, transit to and fro. Um, and a lot of this goes back to Congress. I know Scott alluded to Congress earlier, but uh, Congress was trying to figure out what was going on in the Middle East. They were trying to figure out where the dollars were going, where the civilians were. The military, they wanted to know where their civilians were, too. It was an accountability contract. Right, wrong, or indifferent, I was doing it. And so the company I went to work for, SPS, they they essentially they provided letters of authorization to a lot of companies, not all. Um, they also provided... A software package in the field service representation, which is what I was at FSR, to con- uh, basically track contractors in theater. And that was through the spot jams, joint access management system. Essentially, the narrow it all down, scanning your darn cat card. And so I became a field service rep on that contract, went to theater, uh, started out in Balab, that was my hub, ended up in Biop, and I would just make the rounds, you know, everywhere. Um, fine, well, prior to that, I was at the crit, and uh, that's kind of was a dead end for me. I didn't get any support from the military in charge um, there, so that was unfortunate. That was kind of, uh, you know, one of the lowest spots I think I had in contracting, Scott. I had hmm. nothing but support up until that moment in time, and um you know, threat is a was a large installation, and I needed a motor vehicle. And uh, it, it was in my orders, and I wasn't supported, so uh, I did some, some sitting and some thinking, Scott. <laughs> and uh, you know, I was there about two months with not able to do my job. And uh, a lot of people might think, "Hey, that's a great deal. I'm getting paid good," and I was. But that's not who I am. I don't think a lot of your listeners are that way. Certainly, no, you're not. And um, 
I, I said, I can't take it. If you can't fix this problem, you got to either send me somewhere or you got to send me home. Or, or excuse me, I'll go home. Uh, and that's what I did. Right. And I came back stateside, I think for about a month. It was in the month of December. And then I was asking myself, what am I doing stateside? <laughs> um, and, and, and literally, you know, if you get into the contracting, just just do your job and, and do it. Do a solid job because if you do and you decide to come home and a month later you decide you want to go back, you send a text to your former boss and you're on a plane in two weeks. Right. I mean, that's that's how these things work. So and that just doesn't go for contracting. Right. That goes for life. That goes for any kind of job. Even if you put yourself beside someone. But long story short, I had it back and – and, and that is when I you know, transitioned from blog to crit, back to stateside, back to the two-way, long enough to go to buy-off. I spent substantial time in the buy-off area, um, you know, making the rounds there. Hmm. Now, let me ask you, uh, buy-off, most of the time, when that comes up in conversation, that's typically because we're talking about guys coming and going in and out of Iraq. Um, of course, they go in and out of other places from there as well. Um, but you're saying there was more to it than that. And of course, we know there was. Can you explain that to people, uh, you know, what you did and, and why that was significant? So my op was interesting. I, I actually started out. As a liaison officer of all things, which I don't look in the mirror and think I've ever been one of those, but that was the title. That simply meant I handled anybody that worked for my company. So I was strategically positioned in whatever portion of Biomass you wanted because there was numerous. Uh, it was a large installation of numerous installations, as you know. So everything going on in bio, everything from Boy, um, trying to think of a subtle way to put it, but everything from you know uh, aircraft maintenance to to prison. So I channeled through every one of those facilities because I continue to do my spot jams programming and FSR work, but I also did the liaison our employees, which meant, hey, where are you going? We had different camera, different sensor projects at that time that we've been awarded, and so I would send those FSRs out to theater you know, Afghanistan, wherever they needed to go. And so that that was a great, great gig, if you will. And a lot of high-speed guys. I worked with a lot of great foreign national. You know, I'm talking Swiss Army. Um, everybody who had one or more soldiers in theater I worked with, hmm. great opportunity to meet people. Um, then one day I ended up on a chain of emails um, via my boss and via the Rapid Equipping Force. And a bunch of PhDs, and I thought, man, I've gotten CC'd erroneously on this deal. Um, but it wasn't an error. We had a new contract that we've been awarded. Things I don't know, um, when, when the Army and maybe other branches, when they, they need a gadget that can't be found on planet Earth and they don't currently have in their supply, they go to the REF. Hmm. And the REF is... Um, uh, military installation, of course, they got a lot of smart people that work for them. And if they can't invent it, they'll buy it and remake it huh. to fit the order. 
Okay. So pretty, pretty neat stuff. A lot of stuff I have no clue, of course. Um, however, a particular project I got put on was being a field service rep for uh, equipment that basically never existed. They hired a team of uh, engineers, which, by the way, this particular company is a is a product liability company. And by that, I mean they had some a contract with the Twin Towers. Hmm. So they have to reverse engineer products that fail, if you will. Don't like to use that terminology with the Twin Towers. However, that product fell, and, and they had to reverse engineer to figure out what happened. Huh. So they, they were really a reverse engineer liability type of engineering outfit. However, they, they said, we, we want this opportunity. We want to we want make soft wind that will help the warfighter. But essentially, the next one, without giving anything out, it's a real-time observation via screen of what's underneath your armored vehicles. Huh. Okay. And I was an FSR on that project. And, uh, of course, I'm not a PhD. I'm not an engineer. I'm just kind of a tall, handsome guy. Uh, which is such a long way, Scott. That, that being said, buddy, I, uh, you know, I got on that project, um, ended up living in a small fob with, with a route clearance unit. And in my almost three years of contracting, that, that brought it home for me. That, that made it all real up until huh. the time I, I, I felt like I was always a third wheel to the military, but, uh, huh. that particular contract, you know, sharing sharing holidays with them in the talk, convoying with them once or twice a week, just being an absolute idiot in an MRAP, <laughs> sitting in the sun. <laughs> that just it brought it home for me. So um, that that kind of completed my contracting. I, I finished out that contract. The reality was twofold. The mission had changed drastically in Iraq. A lot of the focus, if you only call, there was, a, I couldn't tell you the date but or the year, but a lot of that focus, a lot of that energy had been rechanneled to Afghanistan. Okay. And b- bottom line is the product I was supporting really just kind of started to look good out in the yard with the rest of the, you know, the up-armored vehicle. <clears throat> and um, I, I got asked to go to Afghanistan, but the application of our our, our merchandise didn't didn't work in Afghanistan. It was a terrain feature problem. Hmm. So that that was problem number one, Scott. But really not a problem. But the number two is, of course, I finished my bachelor's degree while I was in theater. Uh, my whole goal, you believe you set your goal, and you and you complete it if you can. I'll pass. So I finished my bachelor's, and it was time to get home and actually apply for that state game warden job. So. Wow, and that's what I did. Got the job. Wow, you know that's excellent when you that mentioned that. Nutshell. Yeah, well, it is a nutshell because trust me, we could go on for hours about this, and maybe we will. We'll split it up into parts two and three. But that I'm said, game, I'm game for another session, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So I will yeah. say I can attest to the part about you being tall because I I remember getting a kink in my neck looking up at you. <laughs> Now, the handsome part, I'm going to stay away from that one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't touch that one. Uh, it was, let, let that one go. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm not saying you weren't and aren't, but you know, I just don't want to go there. Okay. <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> oh man. Okay. So, um, it, <laughs> no. Okay. So, I remember traveling through or over uh, parts where you talk about Balad and Tikrit, uh, but I never spent time per se in those areas. Uh, you did. So for the folks that are listening, you know, because they hear to crit, uh, you know, the other the other places, you know, blood and Camp Anaconda, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, and you can look yep. this stuff up on maps um, and you can see stuff on videos and YouTube. But from your perspective, from a guy that was there on the ground, what was life like for you on the ground there from a human perspective? So from someone who transitioned quite some time between military and civilian, um, I, I, I loved every part of it. And the reason being is once you've had any kind of structure in your life, i.e. the military, um, you either love it or hate it. That's the bottom line. You either you feel oppressed or you don't. Mm. And so for me, you know, going over there and being part of that, um, it just uh, it was never a dream, but fulfilled every dream I ever had simply because here you are, I believe, doing a good deed every day, how you represent yourself. And that's not just with the military you serve or the company you work for and take their money because uh, you're really taking the taxpayer's dollar. But it's it's really it's recognizing that you're in someone else's neighborhood. That doesn't mean you let your guard down. It doesn't mean you, you say one day, Man, I'm sure them terrorists are, are good people too, and I'm sure every Iraqi or, or every foreign national here thinks I'm a real hero. They never want to do harm to me. You know that would be that'd be silly, and you shouldn't be there. It's the difference between acknowledging that other people have a life too, and they've got souls, and and just being a leader. You, you don't need a big team of people to be a leader. You can be a leader around one other person, hmm. and, and by being a leader, you're showing a little mutual respect. For me, loved the structure, um, loved the environment, you know, and as a contractor, of course, uh, we couldn't be AWOL per se, meaning if you had enough, it's time to go because you're probably going to be a safety risk, and you have that ability. Hmm. You could say today's the day, and knowing that, I always kept that in my mind because that, not that I needed to find, you know, dig deep down and find respect for the warfighter. But you got to think about that. When you could go home the next day, if you chose, if you could get a flight, right, Scott? That's um, correct. Out of country, the warfighter couldn't. So, right. Um, that was the full package for me, and and just just all all the people. You know, that, that's kind of what makes it for me. And everybody, I had really the people I had the opportunity to work with too. Hmm. It'd be uh, I'd be a little remiss not mentioning that because you and I uh, certainly worked with a lot of incredible people. Oh, we did. We did, and and whether they were enlisted or commissioned, uh, the, and, and whether it was CSA or any of the other companies out there playing around in Iraq, or or um, or Kuwait or Afghanistan or any of the other countries, a lot of companies had a lot of really good dudes. A lot of militaries had really good dudes, uh, and I I would say that probably the at least 
the majority of them were good people. Uh, they yeah. were like you and me and anybody else that's listening. You take people at face value uh, and you let them convince you that you like them or you didn't like them just by listening to listening, letting them talk, letting them play. You, you, right. you watch their deeds, you listen to the words, and that's everything you needed to know about the person because everything else was just fluff. But if you watch what they do, what 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 was that? You know, was it? You know, you can say whatever you want, but deeds speak louder than action. So yeah, absolutely, a lot of good people out there. A lot of good people. Um, And I I had my ass, and I'm sure you did too. Um, My ass was saved innumerable times by complete strangers, and I say that kind of loosely, kind of conservatively, because some of them I, I got to know pretty well. They had, yep. but they otherwise had, it's like, wow, they came to my aid? Really? Why? Because they're good people. Yep. That's right. Well, okay. they, don't, they don't know any better. I mean, that's, that's all they know is to do the right thing. And I, I think that's what I would articulate is, you know, it's if, if given, given a test – right or wrong, do I do this or do I not do this? They, you know, most of the people you and I uh, had the pleasure of being around working with, they, they would do the right thing. So They would. They would. And and, and, and here's something, uh, and, and, and I'm sure you had something similar, so I'd like you to talk about it too. But he, he, little, just little things. I'd go to the barbershop on the economy, and I'd sit in, and I'd get my haircut and my shave, and you know how these guys are. They, they, they dote on, they dote on you. I mean, what yeah. should be 15 minutes turns out to be 45 minutes. They wax your ears, they wax your face, they wax your eyebrows, and they pull out the straight <laughs> razor. And you're thinking, dude, what am I doing here? They're pulling out the straight razor. But they're doing a bang up job on you and you come out looking like a GQ model. It's like, holy crap. <laughs> You know, I, I, yeah, you, you start to wonder what this is going to cost. Well, yeah, but right. Well, and I tip them well. But my point is, is that, is that while I'm going through visually thinking about how I'm going to respond if they do this or that, because I mean, let's think about it. Get my haircut. They're shaving me. They cut my jugular. And what can I really do? I mean, I've got 30 to 45 seconds, maybe. Before it's too late, right? <laughs> My life is in their hands. I don't know them from Adam or Eve. And they, but you know, here's the thing. If you're a good dude, they sense it. Just like if they're good people, we sense it, right? Okay. That's right. And you know that from a cop's perspective, you know that. You can sense when you pull somebody over, you're talking to them, you can sense when you're talking to somebody that's that's speaking from the heart, they're speaking the truth as far as the truth goes, and when when you're being BSed, correct? Most of the time, right? Right. Most of the time. That's that's only if you if you still have a little faith in humanity. <laughs> well, well you you got to have a little faith because if you don't, then you, you just dug on it. Everybody's well, going to be a 
You're right. Yeah. And that's a rabbit hole that some of us, uh, we could go down. And I and I don't know about you, but I know I've been there. And it took me a few years to get through it, some dark times. You know, you, you get, but, um, you know, I guess what I was just saying, is, what I'm trying to point out is that there are good people and bad people in this world. It doesn't matter what their color is. It doesn't matter what their nationality is. It doesn't matter anything, whether they were from India or Pakistan or Sri Lanka, Sierra Leone, Uganda, Kuwait, Iraq, Afghanistan. Just go down the list. Good people, bad people. The good people want to help people in trouble. That's right. Okay, right? They have to, have to, almost. I mean, you hate to say it that way, but they almost have to. Well, I'm just saying, in your jobs, in your jobs in Kuwait and Iraq, did you not feel compelled to help people when you thought they were in trouble? Well, many times. I mean, many times, and it's it's there's there's so many mundane moments that you know you you need to. And and when I say mundane or something you never think about, but just offering a bottle of water to someone, right? That is about the size of a pencil, and you know can't can't even get access to water, so. Yes. Something as small as that, I think, has a ripple effect. Um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? But, but once again, you, you don't have to know the outcome. You just have to believe there is a positive outcome. Right. And, and, and what you're talking about is what some people say is the butterfly effect. Okay. So, sure. okay. So you remember driving up and down King, whatever that highway was that went from Iraq down to Saudi Arabia. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And you'd see those guys out there in the median with their little, uh, what we call litter pickers. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, and you're thinking, wow, really? I mean, uh, in America, people would be complaining about it and using all kinds of euphemisms to explain it. But these guys didn't care. They were getting paid, whatever. That's right. Yeah. So in Iraq, Kuwait, Afghanistan, wherever we were, what you're talking about is the bottle of water, just that little humbling, you know what, man, I'm thinking about you, here's a bottle of water. Because aside from food, water was probably the most, uh, you probably the greatest equalizer out there because you could be without ammo. You could be without a weapon. You could be without food for a while, but without water, yep. man. Okay. And so I took water to a lot of guys um, in those countries, and uh, it went a long ways. I even had I, I even had yep. guys say <laughs> I had Iraqi guys kick their bottle of water and holler out Iraqi water. I won't say the word, <laughs> you know, and they and oh, they would man. they would they would they would gratuitously thank me for the water. Sure, uh, sure. you know what I'm saying. So that goes a long ways, um, yes, and and you know what I'm saying, right? Okay. Well, and I I think we you and I we encountered a lot of these folks living in the living in their vehicles, 
mm-hmm. and, you know, convoying and, 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 you know, just cooking and eating and living and stealing road signs up on the, on the gangs and that, that's humbling. Um, you know, they were, they were picking up bottles of water off the side of the highway because that's the kind of country Kuwait can be, but they, they were half, half drank, you know, half used. Uh, they didn't start out being that bottles of water is my point. Didn't matter to them. Right? If you call, they, they had, you know, half bottles, quarter bottles, stuff everywhere they could. Well, yeah, and you could be hungry, and that's one thing. But being thirsty out in the desert, that's another. Uh, oh, that's yeah. a whole nother. Not going to make it. Right. So, and we over there, uh, whether it was, uh, let's go back to Kuwait, for example, because there were a lot of Pakistanis and Indians there. And, you know, other nationalities, but there were a lot of Pakistanis and Indians doing the truck driving and other stuff. Man, you know, for whatever reason, and maybe you can articulate it better than I can, they were, they were looked down upon as second and third world people. I mean, they just were not, yes. in general, they weren't treated with, with, with respect. When they were, they went, whoa. And they took note of that. Yes. And, and you and I, yes, you and I and other people were saying, well, you know, why not? We're seeing the way they're being treated. We're saying, whoa, that's not right. What the heck? Uh, yeah. yeah, certainly, certainly caste system in the Middle East, probably other, other areas on this continent, but, uh, certainly, you know, you and I experienced the caste system in Kuwait. Uh, mm-hmm. Because we certainly weren't Saudis, and they appeared to be something on the totem. But you know, it, it, you're right. It was incredible, incredible caste system, and it just just providing a little bit of dignity. Yes. At, at the end of the day, to another human being. I mean, that's that, to me. I think that was you know became a focus when there was opportunity. You know, as you as you know, in theater was a little more difficult. You had interactions when you could, but when you were on the move, there was there, there was there was no interaction per se, not not positive. You you just A to B and got her done. So right, and, and to some and, and you know to some extent we can kind of pat ourselves on the back saying, well, we had a mission. You know, we, we couldn't always stop. You know, we had to get from point A to point B. Um, but the, there is that human there is that human interaction, whether it was on base or on the economy. You know. Um, there's a strange dichotomy or some other verbiage there uh, in Kuwait, more so than in Iraq and Afghanistan, because in Kuwait, they had, it seemed like everybody from around the world was in Kuwait. Yeah. And I'm sure it's not just Kuwait. It's probably throughout the UAE, Abu Dhabi, Qatar, Saudi, yeah. you know, it just go down the list. Uh, but particularly in Kuwait, it seemed like everybody from around the world was there, whether it was private or public, they were there, and you had interaction with those people, and you could learn a lot from that, and indeed yeah. we did, did we not? Well, you, you, if you did, you just weren't, or if you didn't, you weren't looking. <laughs> bottom line, and that's life, right? I mean, it's if you can't go through with your eyes closed, they'll bump your head or worse. So, you know, it's just, just being a uh, Boy, it's just being the, the, the casual observer all, all the time. 
is really what I boil it down to. Sure. Until it's time to not be casual. But right. You'll learn, learn a lot about folks. Thank you for listening to our 14th episode of Oconus the Contractor's Life, Part 1, with Travis Hayworth. Tune in next week as we pick it up with Part 2.